listening to She Thrives Radio. This is episode number 114. And today, I have a guest for you that kind of needs no introduction. So we'll keep this short because this episode is just chock full of goodness. But today, I have for you Evelyn Triboli who is an award-winning registered dietitian with a nutrition counseling practice in Newport Beach, California. And you probably know her best for one of the nine books that she has written, including co-authoring Intuitive Eating. So all of the buzz of intuitive eating that I think is becoming very popular right now, sort of in our um, cultural landscape in some beautiful ways, this is quite literally the woman who created this concept back in 1995. So Evelyn has been the nutrition expert for Good Morning America. She's been sought after by the media for her nutritional expertise and has appeared on hundreds of interviews all over the place, including CNN, The Today Show, MSNBC, USA Today, Wall Street Journal, People Magazine. Okay, you guys pick up what I'm putting down here. We are talking all about intuitive eating and Evelyn is gonna take us through all of it. And I'm really excited for you guys to hear this. So without further ado, let's just go right ahead and get into this interview with Evelyn Triboli. She Thrives Radio is a production of She Thrives, a space designed to help you take care of you through a holistic and maybe sometimes unexpected approach to your own well-being. I'm Taylor Gage, your BS-free health and mindset coach, and your host who loves lifting heavy, laughing hard, keeping it real, and seeing you live like you love yourself. If you're looking to stop merely surviving and instead start thriving, well, you're in the right place. You ready? My friends, I am so, so thrilled to bring to you today Evelyn Triboli, who, by the way, quite literally wrote the book on intuitive eating, which is really having a moment right now, um, which I'm really pleased to see. So Evelyn, hello, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. And by the way, I also need to mention that um, that book and the concept of intuitive eating was a joint partnership with, with Elise Rush, so... Yeah. That's right. I'm yes. Proud of this. Uh, what was what was a book 25 years ago is now starting to really evolve into a bona fide movement. And it just, um, oh, it, 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 it just warms my heart in ways that are so deep that it's, it's profound. Yeah. Well, it is so amazing to see it really having um, a moment right now. And like you said, I th- the book was written in what year? When did you write that? Well, the original was in 95. That's when the first edition got published. And our fourth edition that's just coming out in June 2020, uh, it's, it's literally 25 years uh, since the original. And we've, we've updated it and added more information and very proud of that work as well. So it's pretty remarkable. 25 years. So I would love for you. I mean, I have a feeling that most people who are listening to this right now are familiar at in some varying degree with the term intuitive eating, but I would love it if you would just kind of take us through a little bit of um, your personal story, sort of what led you to that place to write this book and do this research and um, just dig into this concept in general. Um, how, how did you get there? 
Well, you know, it was really interesting. So I was already in private practice as a dietitian for about 10 years, and Elise uh, was in private practice even longer. And we were working in the same, actually, I rented an office from her. That's how I actually got to get to know her. And we were both experiencing frustration that we'd create these beautiful meal plans for the intention of weight loss, thinking it's not, it's a lifestyle and dietitians. And yes, you can eat that cookie, but not 10. And realizing that this is not working and it's not feeling good. It, people would have short-term results. And then we get calls a year later, two years later, or whatnot, and like, oh my God, I, I blew it again and I, I need your help. And so what we really did is like, this isn't working. It didn't feel good down to our soul level. So we started looking at what we know as best practices at the time. We started really doing a deep dive into the research. What's the research really say? And so we came up with all, of, and then also looking at what was going on just in the world of, of publishing. There was a popular book out at the time called Overcoming Overeating by Hershen Munter that put forth the idea of eat whatever you want, but it didn't have a lot of um, background into it in terms of why that might be a good idea. And as dietitians, we were thinking, I don't know if that's a good idea. <laughs> but as we started looking into the research, we saw how important it was for our emotional health. So we ended up coming up with these um, 10 principles of intuitive eating, which is basically about you being the boss of your body, you being the boss of your, your experience. And we can say that these principles were research inspired, but now fast forward 25 years later, we have over 125 studies showing benefits of our work and it keeps getting better. There was a study just published, an eight year long study showing that intuitive eating seems to be really protective against binge eating, which makes sense because one of the first directives of intuitive eating is to reject the diet mentality. And we know there's a body of research that shows that when people restrict their eating, regardless of the intention, is that it leads to loss of control kinds of eating. And so what ends up happening is there's a phenomenal healing that takes place. Intuitive eating is really about healing your relationship with food, mind, and body, or cultivating a healthy relationship. And it really, it's life-changing. And I think one of the reasons it's, it's life-changing has to do with the, the basis of what this work is on, and it has to do with how our brain works. And there's something called interceptive awareness, and that's our ability to perceive physical sensations that are, you know, arise in our body. And that might sound like a big deal. You know, if you, if you feel a full bladder, that's interceptive awareness. You feel your heart rate, that's interceptive awareness. Uh, hunger and fullness, satiety cues, also are that. But every emotion has a physical sensation. So what ends up happening is, as you're making peace with your eating and as you're making peace with your body you are now in relationship with one of the most profound ways our body communicates our needs with us uh, when we are connected to the messages of our body it helps us get our biological and psycho psychological needs met which i just think is so profound and so what we see happening time and time again as somebody's healing their relationship with food mind and body it crosses over into other areas of their life and it's just I think it's why I have such a passion, you know, for this work to see lives change. It's just profound. You touched uh, on one of the first tenets of uh, intuitive eating, which is to reject the diet mentality. I would love it if you gave us a real, you know, I think there's, there's a few of these principles of intuitive eating that I would really love to open up and explore here. But before we do that, can you just give us some foundation? Can you give us the 101 tour of what these principles are um, and why they're so valuable? Yeah, I'll start broad and then I'll go really specific. So these principles work either by helping you with the connection of your body, the interceptive awareness connection, or the principles work by removing the disruptors to that connection. And the disruptors come generally from the mind in terms of thoughts, rules, and beliefs around 
eating. So that's a kind of a simple way to look at it. And yet it's, it's complex and easy at the same time, like, like breathing. <laughs> You know, meditating sounds really easy until you start doing it. It's complex and simple at the same time. So there's 10 key principles. The first is rejecting the diet mentality. And I never in my wildest dreams thought I'd ever see diet culture the way it is today. To be so fierce, to be so normalizing of disordered eating behavior. I think it's why we're seeing eating disorders have doubled in the last time period in which they're looked at, which is just problematic. Uh, the second principle is honoring your hunger. That's pretty basic, but where people often make a misstep is when they're coming from the lens of diet culture, they sometimes take our principles and turn them into rules. And these are not rules. They are guideposts. It doesn't have to be you have to eat precisely when you're hungry. Sometimes there might not be hunger, and that's absolutely okay. So these are guideposts. You can't fail at intuitive eating. It's, it's not pass or go. It's a journey of discovery. Uh, the third principle is making peace with food. That's probably the most misunderstood principle of intuitive eating and probably the most controversial. And what that has to do is, yeah, yeah, you can eat the food. <laughs> and to have dietitians say that is, is revolutionary. And what this has to do is with a phenomenon, twofold phenomenon. It's one is called habituation, that the more you're exposed to something that's novel over, over a time, it's, it's no big deal. And the best description I've ever heard of, of this is... Um, by a researcher who described, you know, when you fall in love for the first time and you hear that person say to you, I love you and it's magical and you are floating on air and it's phenomenal. Five years later, you're in a committed relationship and they say, I love you. It's like, yeah, I know I'm supposed to. <laughs> it's still nice, but the, but the novelty of that experience isn't there. And what happens when people are chronic, chronically either dieting or they're on food plans for the purpose of shrinking their body is they don't have that experience of habituation. Food stays exciting. And as a result, it gets really exciting and people get terrified. The most common reaction I hear to this principle is, oh my God, Evelyn, if I eat whatever I want, I'll never stop. And my response is, that is really common with someone who's been deprived of food. That's a reflection of deprivation. But the truth is, you know, would you really want to eat chocolate at every single meal, every single day? Now, if you've been deprived of it, that might sound like a fantasy. But the truth is, if you can really have it, do you really want it? And do you like the way you feel when you finish eating it? And so what happens to a lot of people, there's this love-hate relationship where they're lusting over food, they don't let themselves have it, and then when they finally get to have it, they think they're never, ever going to have it again, and it becomes a last supper farewell feast, and they go, oh my God, see, I'm, I am out of control with food, I have to have rules, and it gets them set up right back into this. And the other area of re research that this is built on is, is a, uh, an area of, of restraint theory where they showed this phenomenon of basically dieters, that the more they have rigid rules and they have restraint to follow their rules uh, in order to suppress their weight to keep a certain um, weight that when the restraint gets broken it leads to this powerful paradox of disconnection they're not listening to their bodies they're not feeling to their bodies and the best description i ever heard about that from a researcher was called the what the hell effect is like oh my god that's what my patients talk about so making peace with food is about your emotional health it's not healthy to be worrying and stressing about your eating you know yes there's a difference nutritionally between eating a green jelly bean and a piece of broccoli we know that this is about the emotional type of health uh, and, and that's a very important component uh, then the fourth principle is challenging the food police and that has to do with all the food rules in your head basically so there's the inner food release a food police rather that has to do with your own rules then there's the outer food police and that's the culture the community it could be instagram or whatever and and it's that it makes it 
huge, huge impact on being able to connect with your body. Then there's uh, discovering satisfaction, and that's the hub of intuitive eating. You know, what does satisfaction feel like to you? That's a pleasure-based principle, and it's incredibly personal. I can't answer that question. Uh, what sounds good? What feels good in your body? How do you want to feel when you finish eating? You know, ultimately, it doesn't feel good to undereat, and ultimately, it doesn't feel good to eat past a certain point of fullness when you're feeling uncomfortable in your body. Um, then the sixth principle is feeling your fullness. You know, what, what does comfortable fullness feel like? That's actually a normal feeling, but diet culture has pathologized that in terms of you've done something wrong. It's like, no, you've done something beautiful. You're connecting with your body. Um, the seventh principle, and this is where we, we've tweaked it a bit uh, with this new edition, is coping with your feelings with kindness. And it used to, the title of this principle used to be cope with your feelings without using food. And the reason we changed it, the whole point of that principle was to find a variety of ways to cope with feeling, um, with your feelings. But what's happened with diet culture is they have, it has pathologized the normalcy of, of, of emotional eating. You know, when you celebrate your birthday, that's a part. If you, I, I would hate for someone to say, oh no, I can't have birthday cake, I'm not hungry. Oh no, I'm not gonna have my wedding cake because it's not on my food plan and I'm not hungry. So it's, it's acknowledging that. And sometimes the best thing you can do to cope with emotions is to eat something. And there's no shame in that. We want to remove the shame. And there's also this acknowledgement of this phenomenon that many people who believe they're emotional eaters are actually people who are deprived of eating eaters. In other words, it's hunger driven and they don't recognize that yet. And so until the body is consistently nourished, um, we're not even sure that we even call it emotional eating. It might be compensatory uh, eating that your body's actually very smart. And you know, one way I like to describe this is, and again, this has become pathologized too. So, you know, out here in, in California, I, I live near the ocean. I played in the ocean all my life. And when you get into a big set of waves, you know, what you do is you duck and, and you wait till the set goes by. You usually count to 60 or who knows what people do, but you hold your breath while the set's going by. And then you come up and sometimes it feels like a long time. And when you take that first panicky, uh, that gasp, no one calls that. Oh my God, she has loss of control breathing. Oh my God, she's addicted to air. Oh, she's binge breathing. We know it's a natural compensatory effect to air deprivation. And we need to have that perspective with, with eating. But what instead what tends to happen is a lot of shame loaded onto that. And then the eighth principle of intuitive eating is respect your body. And this is so, so important. You know, we are so much more than a body. Our body is our home for the rest of our life. It is the house of our essence, our soul, our consciousness. And yet people beat themselves up all the time. And it honestly, it's, it's heartbreaking. And it's this idea that all bodies, all bodies uh, deserve respect and dignity, and that includes how you treat them, how you talk to them, and, and so on. And the last two principles are kind of basic, except they're not, uh, and that has to do with movement, to move your body in a way that feels good. And for some people, that might mean taking the day off, that, oh my God, I'm feeling, I got an injury coming on, or oh my gosh, I am wiped out. Uh, so it means a variety of things. And then the 10th principle, and it's the reason is the last one, it's on your health with gentle nutrition. And the reason we saved it for the last is even though Elise and I love nutrition, we both have master's of degree, bachelor of science degrees in nutrition, we found that if we implement this way too soon or way too early, it becomes like another diet. But nutrition is actually a component of this. And then we step back and look at all 10 principles. It's an inner uh, dynamic integration. 
You can't cherry pick and say, this is intuitive eating. If you can't say, oh, it's make peace with food, have a free for all. It's like, no, that's not what it is. You might go through a phase of that, but it includes all of these things. And ultimately it's about you getting to know you. It's about authentic, authentic connection with your body, authentic hunger, not trying to fake out your hunger, not trying to fake out fullness. And it's a beautiful, beautiful process. It's liberation, you know? There is so much that you just shared in there that I want to go back on and open up because first of all, the analogy of binge breathing, I thought was quite amazing and thank you. Um, really kind of put some things in perspective, right? I think that that's just like, you know, this actually speaks on something I was going to, uh, I wanted to bring up today because I've heard you um, speak to this idea that there are people who claim that they are addicted to food or that they are uh, addicted to sugar. And I've seen you publicly kind of discuss this. And I would I love have. to hear you open this up sort of on the heels of this being, you know, addicted to breathing concept. Oh, here. Let's. Uh, so take it away. What is that? Yeah, I'll tell you, it's something that really, really gets me going <laughs> because it's part of fear mongering. But let me let me step back and say what it is. And it's I, I think we can acknowledge that it's a theory. Food addiction is a theory. Sugar addiction is a theory. And when we start peeling apart and looking at the actual research, what I really see is that it's a misplaced theory that doesn't have a lot of data to back it up. And it causes a lot of harm through fear mongering. And I'll, I'll unpack this some more, but I want to tell a little story. So last year I had the pleasure, and I almost turned them down until they were very clear about what the intention was. I had the uh, pleasure of debating a researcher, a neuroscientist who does research on sugar addiction in rats. That's her specialty. And the, the true purpose of coming together was to have a, a, a didactic conversation where we can uh, come together and understand our different perspectives. It was very respectful on both ends. We both agreed we would do it again. And uh, it was uh, Nicole Avina. And I do respect her. I just completely disagree with her. And it's probably fair to say she disagrees with me as well. And what she was involved with was the first seminal study looking at the question, uh, can we be addicted to food? And they created an animal model. And what's important to recognize is that this thinking and theory really originated out of diet culture. I think that's the important part. The lens comes from that. And it's important what we name something because it impacts how we're going to treat it. It's going to impact how we prevent it. So they created a very a famous study that went headline news around the world where they got these rats so-called addicted, I'm doing air quotes, to, to sugar. I'm thinking, how in the world do they do that? And by the way, I'm a geek. I love science. I love neurology, neuroscience. I thought, okay, I'm reading this. <laughs> I'll tell you what's fascinating about this study is not the rats that couldn't stop eating sugar. It was the control rats that were given the same amount of sugar and they're like, eh, give take it. It's like, I want to know about those rats. What was the difference? Well, it turned out the only way, and in subsequent studies as well, they can get the rats to this point of eating sugar out of control is if they restricted their eating. And so what's interesting to me is they're focusing on this out of control stuff uh, and leading to people to believe that, oh, you can be addicted to sugar. And by the way, this has never, ever, ever, ever been shown in, in humans. And the theory being, well, there's similar pathways that we see in substance abuse. But what we have to remember that these pleasure pathways that get hijacked in substance abuse are actually the very things that keep us alive. Uh, eating is supposed to be pleasurable. Can you imagine if we could care less about food? Oh my God, I don't care. And then we drop dead of starvation 60 days later. Or for mating. You know, can you imagine if sex is like, oh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> 
would not be here right now if people had that attitude. So food is supposed to be rewarding. It's supposed to feel good. So that's an aspect of that. And so they've never, ever been able to show this in, in humans. And so the, the fact that they had to have food restriction make this happen, to me, this actually parallels what we see in human studies, that when you, and the, the, the most profound one was the Minnesota starvation study where they took college. I love talking about this study with, with to university students because I get gasps when I say this. Um, it's a college age men put them on a semi-starvation diet for a period of time along with exercise. And yeah, they got malnourished, but what happened to their minds just blew everybody away. They became obsessed with food. They, they started collecting recipes and, and, and cookbooks. And there was a description you, I actually have, I'll even just show you these. Like I got the original study here. It's two volumes. Uh, it's about 2000 pages of the original stuff. I haven't still read it all, but I've read a lot of it. And they talk about the men became so obsessed with eating. This one man said, you know, I am so sick of this nutrition masturbation. And I thought, wow, that's a really good term. That's apt for today because people that go down the rabbit hole of diet culture, and by the way, they do it for good intentions. This is not about shaming the people that get caught up in it, but it's just a level of self-absorption that happens. As a res And I, I think because it's self-protective that we have to be thinking of food. We need food on the brain to survive a famine. And when you read the descriptions of these men when they were eating, they couldn't stop eating. They would lose control. Uh, one man went out and stole candy and binged on the candy and then felt so guilty he made himself throw up. Another man went out and binged on milkshakes, same thing, made himself. So we created eating disorders. This is a very, very powerful study. When I talk to college students, I will add another symptom that took place too, that these men became disinterested in sex. And when I say that, they go, oh my gosh. <laughs> That's when they know, this is messed up. <laughs> this is messing up something profound. Because yeah, it's part of the survival mechanism. So that's kind of some background. So meanwhile, in a parallel world, for sure and for real, there is this scale called the Yale Food Addiction Scale that was created in 2009. And the researcher said, you know, let's use the model of addiction. Let's use substance abuse criteria and let's apply it to eating what would be the components of that so they created what they call a psychometric assessment which basically a questionnaire what would reflect that and they gave it to their ivy league students uh, and they found significant um impact that i forget the number it was a very high number of these kids who were quote met the criteria for food addiction. And it did not make sense to me. It's like, how in the world? I read the study, how in the world? When I finally got a hold of the actual questionnaire, I was like, oh, oh, I, I see what's happening now. This questionnaire, in my opinion, is a proxy for dieting. So they would have questions on there like, do you, do you have trouble stopping eating? Do you think and worry about food a lot? And what chronic diet or what person who hasn't been involved in some kind of food plan with intention of performance or something hasn't had that? So I think what they're really picking up is real. And since then, they've now modified this questionnaire. It's been repeated in many, many studies. And what a lot of researchers who have dissected this have said, you know what, it's proxy. It's a proxy for trauma. It could be a proxy for people who don't have alternative coping skills. It could be a proxy for eating disorders. And then my opinion on this is that it's a proxy for dieting. So they're picking up on something real, but it's a misfortune that they're calling it food addiction. So when you have this prestigious university in the title and then call it food addiction, 
then what's that do for research? Well, if they're looking at preventing it, they're gonna treat it like a drug. They're looking at drugs and types of things as opposed to getting to the root. What's the root? Dieting. And so what I forgot to mention is back at the time the study was done, you know, about half of the college population at that time was dieting. So that makes sense then that you might get this high, high thing. So I, I, I think what it's doing, it's adding fear mongering. And a really good paper came out and said, you know, that's what it's doing. <laughs> and it's gonna create a self-fulfilling prophecy where you say, oh, I can't eat this, I'm, I'm addicted. And as, as a result of that, when you finally have that food for whatever reason, you know you're never gonna have it again. You're really, really, really not. And then boom, you, you eat it and think you're never gonna have it again and eat those quantities that don't make you feel good. So going back to the original story I was telling you about this debate, I thought, you know, it's interesting to me. I've had a lot of patients over the years who really believe they were to food. And by the way, I never question someone's experience. I believe them when they say that. And I'll say, you know, I really believe that, th that the only thing that can explain it in your perspective is it must be addiction because I there's no way I'd want to do this. But I, what I'd like you to think about, this is how smart your body is. Yeah. And if we look at what was happening before all this kind of eating behavior, we actually have a different explanation for it. And so I tell them all the, all the aspects. And I, you know, I wish I can say that just giving people facts like, oh, great, I'm gonna eat this food now. So no, 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 they're scared. And when you're scared, you need safety and you need to proceed slowly and that's completely okay. So I've had a lot of patients over the years who thought they were addicted and it just turned out, no, they were food deprived, like the air deprivation. And so what I did last year on Instagram, I, I, I posted a question to my followers. I said, hey, have you ever believed you were addicted to food of any kind and and then found out you weren't and the the massive responses i had was just profound and what was and that's not a study but we're seeing people's experiencing that yeah i used to think i was and then i found out i wasn't i was actually chronically dieting and my body was just trying to live i just didn't accept that as a possibility so mm. that's <laughs> why i get i love i love See, I love looking into the research of this. And when I go to scientific conferences and if someone's presenting on this so-called food addiction uh, or food addiction theory, I'll go up to the microphone and I'll ask them, I'll say, you know, did you control for dieting? And I wish you can see the look in their <laughs> eyes. And they go like, no, I just asked that one question because they know it's a huge confounder. So let me, let me back up and say that when somebody is hungry and somebody's been dieting, of course, food's going to be more rewarding. Most studies don't control for that. That's the problem, you know? So... I love that insight. And I have to say that I love how research centric you are. And there's a lot of places that like a lot of ground that I want to cover, but I think on the topic of research, something that I'd love to just hear you speak on uh, quickly before we unpack a lot of the other good, good shit in there is with, um, I saw, so I saw you, I should back up a little bit and say that I saw you, uh, doing some speaking or at a conference or giving a presentation, um, somewhere on the internet. And you were referencing a study about the difference in health between the United States and some other countries, namely oh, yeah. France. And I would love to hear you just kind of like quickly explain in your mind or maybe what the research showed about how the stress of worrying about the healthiness oh. of the food yeah. that you're eating does more harm to us than the actual food. Can you just oh my like God. lay it out? Yeah, this is one of my favorite <laughs> studies. You know, it's so funny. I, a researcher pointed this out to me. I was giving a talk with this scientist and she said, you know, you give names for all your studies. It's like, oh my God, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're talking about, I've called it the food worry study. Mm. And it's a profound study ahead of its time in the 90s by Paul Rosen. And what he did, a first of a kind study, he looked at four countries. He looked at the United States. He looked at four countries and looked at their attitudes and, uh, um, and, and, and eating patterns as it, as it relates to health and so on. 
And when he, so he looked at France, the United States, he looked at Japan, because at the time they had one of the world's highest life expectancies. And he looked at Belgium, because there was someone in the middle of all of that. And what he found is that Americans worried the most about their eating. And they, they enjoyed their eating the least. They, enjoy, they weren't enjoying their eating. On the other end of the spectrum, the French, oh my gosh, they loved their food. It was a source of pride. The quality of their eating was very, very important to them. And so they enjoyed their eating the most. And Japan and Belgium were somewhere in between. So it was a fascinating study, but the part that got my attention many, many years ago reading it was the researcher's uh, discussion. And he said, you know, we're, we worry so much about food, the impact of food on our health. Whether, and I, now I'm paraphrasing, I say it like this, that we worry so much about food killing us or curing us. We don't look at the impact or consider the impact of the worry itself, of the stress. And that was the point of his um, paper. We need to look at the impact of all this anxiety around eating. Now, this was in the 90s when it was published before diet culture was so fierce as it was. And it was also before all this research came out on stress and on something called allostatic load. And that is biologically, our body can only handle a certain amount of stress. And the way stress is uh, um, manifest in our body chemically is, is by pr producing cortisol, which can be helpful in a short term, but not if it's manufactured because of our own mindset, you know? Mm -hmm. And so now what we see now is this kind of worry how it increases cortisol. There was actually a very interesting study out of UCLA looking at dieters. And what they found is that their cortisol, cortisol levels were a lot higher even though they were saying, oh, I'm not worried. <laughs> it turned out it was having an impact. So I think what we need to look at and really consider that health is much, much more broader than what we eat. And health, and this is the part that people get surprised about, is not reflected in the size of your body. That's a huge misunderstanding in our culture. And when you start looking at all the research on health and body size, it comes from a field or a type of study called epidemiological research where they're looking at associations and association is not causation. And the way I describe it to my, to my patients is that, you know, we know in the summertime that more people swim and that more people drown, unfortunately. We also know in the summertime that more people eat ice cream because it's, it's refreshing and it tastes good. So I, it's true, ice cream is associated with drowning. However, it is not true that ice cream causes drowning. And every time I talk about that, people laugh, like, oh my God, how ridiculous, ha ha ha. And yet, what ends up happening with this kind of research, it tends to validate what your, what your own belief system is, you know? And so when it comes to weight, what these studies are missing out on, they're missing out on something called social determinants of health, like where you live in a food desert, or if you're living in impoverished settings, that in itself has an impact on health. There was a profound study published in 2010 looking at loneliness and relationship. And what they found is even when you looked at weight, you looked at cigarette smoking, other kinds of thing, the loneliness and the quality of relationships had the biggest public health impact. That's the only study I know that's actually looked at that in that particular way. And then when we start taking a look at another area of similar kind of research called ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences, what they have found is that when adults have had trauma, and they looked at 10 categories of trauma, uh, it can include even divorce as a, a trauma. It can, be, it can be witnessing abuse or being subject to abuse, whether it's physical abuse or emotional abuse. It can have somebody uh, incarcerated. And what they found is that as adults, 
when they, if they were children and they had six or more of these adverse effects, six or more of these ACEs, that knocked 20 years off of their life. And then it correlated with all of these chronic health conditions. And these studies looking at weight don't consider ACEs, they don't consider social determinants of health, and they don't consider uh, loneliness and all these kinds of things. And so that it's an association, but not a causation. And so that, that's one aspect that's problematic. Then if you look at the other thing, well, what happens if we change body weight? If we try and change body weight, do we increase health outcomes? And what the answer is, is no. <laughs> it, what we see over and over again is a body work showing that when you focus on losing weight, what ends up happening is the biggest predictor of weight gain and weight cycling. It's not sustainable. And people get shocked when I say that because they see all these pictures on Instagram of before and after. It's a short, short time period. And so that's incredibly problematic. So even if, even if weight was a cause of a health issue, which really has not shown to be the case, uh, there isn't an effective treatment for that in terms of pursuing uh, you know, dieting, weight loss kinds of things. It's been shown over and over and over again. And I get health professionals that are shocked. I show them the body of research. I'll say, don't take my word for it. Actually, here's the studies. Here's the citations. Go read it. And we're talking about big meta-analysis papers. We're not talking about, you know, aberrant papers. And they're, and they're blown away. It's like, well, why didn't I learn about this in, in college? And there's so much weight centricism. And we start looking back on a, on a societal lens. There was a book just published last year by the academic Sabrina String. Uh, and, it's, and the book is called uh, Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Roots of Fat Phobia. And it's profound that this goes way back before even medicine got involved, you know? And so we're in a big old mess. So pursuing weight loss is not sustainable for the great majority of people. It predicts more weight gain. It increases weight stigma and weight stigma in itself is tracking with many of these so-called, uh, many of these chronic conditions that are uh, so-called related to, to, to weight in, of its, in itself. And then, so when you look at the harms that are caused in terms of the weight stigma, in terms of eating disorders, it's really problematic. And I'll tell you what's really interesting. When I have time and I'm unpacking this like in a workshop or at a conference, I will invariably get the question, what about health? And so in all of this, I'm not saying to ignore health. I'm saying if you want to choose health, you certainly can, but we need to move away from a weight-centric lens. You know, we can engage in healthy behaviors that are sustainable and feel good. We can move our bodies. We can eat, you know, more fruits and vegetables and those types of things. But what's happening in our culture right now is that eating has become a person's, I have seen it become someone's identity. It's turned into a moral issue, like I'm better than you because I eat this way, or it becomes like virtual signaling, mm -hmm. and it's really problematic, and we need to get back to the humanity of our existence, you know? Oh, man, there was some <gasps> good stuff in there, Dean, and I, whew, I love that you ended on something that um, I definitely feel myself, and I don't think I've put it quite in those words publicly, but certainly feel is that food has become virtue signaling for so many people, and I think also um, our identity tied not only with food, but with fitness as well, right? Like yes, that has become our right. full identity, and what we completely kept, like that's what we understand to be true and good about ourselves, and so there's so much to challenge and unpack in there. And you, you know, you, you also touched on something that I would really love to hear you share here because I'm sure that there are um, some people listening to this who are like nodding along and going, okay, you know, I'm on board. I like this idea. Mm -hmm. You mentioned this culture of like, you know, being in like before and after, right? It's almost yeah. like we're expecting this like instant heavy, heavier quotes, results on whatever it is that we're seeking. When it comes to the intuitive eating path, 
what kind of a journey, what kind of a timeline do you like to advise or just like, you know, set people up for, because I think this is a trap that some people fall into, right? They're like, okay, I want to do this. They give it a go for perhaps a month, maybe six, <laughs> still don't feel like they're where, where they should be heavy air yeah. quotes. And then kind of come back to what they know to be safe, which for a lot of people is dieting for whatever reason. So when it comes to a timeline with this, what are we looking at? What is average? What is normal? Take us through that. You know, I get a lot of questions on that. So I'm going to give you an answer that might not be so satisfying. No, and I love it. <laughs> the answer is it's different for it's highly highly variable it really depends i'm going to give you some examples that might help someone in a question in of themselves so i have seen if, if we're looking at the shorter end of the timeline i've seen people really connect with this if they have very little history of dieting very little history of following food plans for the purpose of shaping their body uh they they they, they, they can catch on and, and really get into this but if we take the converse and I've, oh my God, I had a patient come in. Uh, I, I've been working with her for quite some time and she brought in the food journal her mother kept for her when she was three or five years old on a diet at Weight Watchers and reading it was heartbreaking. And so if you've been somebody who's been put on a diet at a very young age, that's a huge trust disruptor. You're a kid, you're gonna do what your mom or dad says, but your body gets hungry and at some point you're gonna sneak that food and you're gonna think there's something wrong with you because you can't do what mommy and daddy say. And, and by the way, this is not shaming parents. Parents are doing the best they can. Mm -hmm. They're often doing this in conjunction with um, medical supervision and, and so on, but it creates a huge problem. And so for somebody with that kind of complexity, that's going to take longer. If we have a history of trauma, that's going to take longer. If you have a history or you're currently in the throes of an eating disorder, please know that recovery is possible. Please know intuitive eating is possible, but that's going to take a lot longer, not because there's something wrong with you. It's not because you're broken. There's just a lot of healing and a lot of repair uh, to do. And you're so right. Uh, in this expectation, I see it a lot. In part, it's groomed by diet culture. If I just work hard, I just work my ass off. Yes. The way I do my training, I do my reps, and I do my intuitive eating reps, boom, I'm nailing this. Mm -hmm. I understand the mindset. And, you know, we were sharing earlier, I have an athletic background. I was incredibly driven. I, I used to actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you how old school I am. Uh, it was so long ago when I was in high school, they didn't have a girls track team. So I ran on the boys team, you know, and I ran to beat the boys. And that's how I got interested in, in nutrition and I ended up lettering in the boys team. And then later on went on to college. And then when they let women uh, for the first time, it was in 1984, they let women run the marathon in the Olympics. Up until that time, the longest distance was a mile. Like, God forbid, we'll pass out from the vapors. And so it was a real exciting time because uh, they had a qualifying standard to meet and I trained my ass off. And I, I was one of like 200 women to meet the qualifying standard and to be part of history. And I remember back then doing some really stupid things because I was so driven. You know, if I had times I had a hit for pacing, I didn't care if a light was red. I would look both ways, of course, and see if any cars coming. I'd run a red light while I was running. I'm not proud of that. You know, I ran on some injuries and got humbled by that and got a stress fracture and some other types of things. So my point is I understand that perspective of having discipline and being driven and having success in that way. But what's different about that, actually, let me talk about the similarities. So when I get athletes, I'll say, you know, I'm curious with your level of athleticism, are you at the point where you can feel an injury coming on? And usually the answer is, oh yeah, 
I said, well, how do you know that? How did, how did, how did you figure that out? And usually they got what I call humbled into submission. They had some, something they weren't paying attention to that got into a big old ass injury and it cost them six months or a year to get back. And so they started listening. And also just the act of, of, of connecting with their body, they became more attuned. And that's what we do with intuitive eating. The problem and the challenge in our culture, we are not taught that. It has not been valued. What we have instead, one of the biggest atrocities, that I think it started, I don't remember where it started, I think it was with my plate, when they started doing mm. uh, federal guidelines based on calories. It's like, oh my gosh, let's connect to our bodies. So we're not taught that. Yeah. And as a result, this is brand new. So you just can't come in and say, I'm going to nail it. I'm going to honor hunger and I'm going to stop at comfortable fullness or I'm going to honor satisfaction because you know what on the surface it sounds pretty easy it sounds pretty straightforward it is straightforward except it's not <laughs> because it's about listening and figuring out well, what does this mean what would happen now if i ate when i'm pleasantly hungry as opposed to when i'm in the throes of what i call primal hunger primal hunger is get away from me i'm gonna kill you if i can't get my food right now get out of mm -hmm. my way and that's intense and that's urgent so what this is it's a journey and i think looking at it that way is a little more helpful it's a journey of discovery not pass or fail and so what i say i welcome the enthusiasm but we need to temper it with the reality of how long have you been you know, stuck in diet culture. And I'll tell you a way to kind of get some bearings on this is how often are you worrying and thinking about food and your body? If you're spending a good majority of your time stuck in worry, that suggests to me you've been stuck for a while. It's not a judgment. It's just like, okay, we need to look at this. And guilt doesn't feel good and worry doesn't, doesn't feel good. And, you know, one of the things I love saying to my patients is unless you killed someone to get that food, there's no morality in eating, you know? Uh, we need to return to the pleasure in eating. And I'll tell you, I've had patients when I ask them, what, what would be satisfying for you? What's a satisfying meal? What's your favorite food? And they'll start crying and say, I don't know. I'm always eating what I think is the healthiest choice. Or when I go out to dinner with my friends, I'm going to listen first to what they order and I'm going to order even healthier than they am. It's a competition. And every time you do that, it's the expense at the disconnection between you and your body. And what can happen is that you, you, so one, you might not even know what foods you really like in terms of taste, but what foods actually feel good in your body and sustain you. When you've been practicing ways of tricking your body into fullness or delaying signs of hunger, that creates a disconnect and creates confusion and disrupts trust. It can all be healed. I want to say that, but this doesn't happen overnight. I wish all I have to do is say, here, just learn these 10 facts. Boom, you're done. It's over. And it's not, it's, it's, uh, it's deep in our culture, the amount of weight stigma and fat phobia that go on that root or at the root of a lot of this uh, problem. So it's gonna be important to have, important to have self-compassion for yourself in this process. And that's something I teach my patients that's usually lacking. They'll say, oh my God, I feel, I'm, I'm gonna just say the language they use. They'll say, I feel like a fuck up. How come I can be so successful in these areas of my life? How come I can nail this and not this? And I'll say, how often in these successful areas that you're talking about, are you actually listening to your body? Has that been taught? Has that been something that's considered sacred to know? And I, I haven't met a person yes, yet where the answer is yes to that. And that's okay. That just means, oh, it makes sense why this is confusing for you. It's confusing. That's okay. It's completely okay. We can start, we can start right where you're at right now. You know, yeah. what's one thing you can do today? And so, you know, one of the things I stress with intuitive eating 
is that you don't have to go in order. Now, when you write a book, you need to go in order. So that's why we have, you know, principles one through 10. But I will often start somebody off with satisfaction. You know, what does that feel like? To, what is it? What, what, how do you want to feel? What kind of food sound good? And, how, and do, you want, do you want to feel sustained? Or, or how, does, how is it? And then, I don't know. I don't know. And it's curious. And I said, well, I can't feel that for you. Let's start figuring out what that might be, you know? Yeah. And it's a curious journey and it's okay if you don't nail it. And sometimes I've had, see, this is the perfectionism. I've had some people feel that they have to have a 10. I had an awesome meal. It was fantastic. It tasted fantastic. I felt amazing. And sometimes guess what? I mean, that's lovely when that happens. It really, I love those at those times, but there's going to be times where it's ordinary. It's going to be like a pair of sensible shoes. It gets the job done. You know, mm -hmm. no, no shame in that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes like, okay, I'm just going to take care of my body. Nourishment is self-care. That's okay. I think there's such important takeaways that you shared in there. And I feel like there's so many other directions that I want to go. And I'm really trying to figure out where I want to go next because there's so much good stuff. I think what, you know, I think this is actually a little bit of where we started that I'd kind of love to come full circle on. Um, is you mentioned that one of the most difficult premises for people to either like get on board with or do or decide is okay or whatever is this entire idea of making peace with food. And yeah. it's really interesting how much resistance we feel around just the concept of full permission to eat food. Yeah. And I'm curious what your advice is to those people who are like, Okay, everything else here sounds awesome, but that part really terrifies me. Where do we begin yeah. with that? First of all, I, I would say that's normal. It's normal to feel terrified. And so we don't, see, here's the thing. And this is where we have to really give ourselves some space on what, it, what is it that you need in order to feel safe to start this process? Mm -hmm. What's a baby step? And when I say that, people will say, I want to do a big step. <laughs> I'll say, great. What about this? Oh, I'm too scared. So we have to dial it in. And there's no, no shame in that. So one of the things I like to make sure, let's at least make sure your body is adequately nourished. Because, you know, let's say you had a crazy day and you forgot to eat lunch or you didn't eat lunch and it's eight o'clock and you just got home from the gym or somewhere and you decide you're going to make peace with ice cream or you're going to make peace with cookies what's probably going to happen is you're in a place of what I call meal hungry or primal hunger hungry and if you sit down and try and make peace and have primal hunger the amount of food is going to take to feel like it felt enough is not going to feel good physically. So I want to create the causes and conditions. So let's first make sure, let's get some consistency going in. And then what I do to really break this down in, in steps is I might say, let's create a hierarchy of foods. And when I say hierarchy, I'm talking about fear. I'm not talking about one's worthy over, over another. What foods are right now, you, are you terrified of eating? We can put them on one side of the paper. What foods, I call them gray foods, and these are foods where sometimes you're terrified and sometimes you can do it. And usually what I find the mitigating factor is how life is going. If you're having a stressful day, you're just having a tough time, then that food is like, there's no way I'm going to do that. But if life is going good and you're feeling good about yourself, oh yeah, I can, I can eat that. And so then, and what I find is that you don't sit down and just put it, write down all these foods. It only happens over days, you know, sometimes, and we just keep adding to it. And then let's prioritize. What do you want to work with? And I usually start suggesting, let's start with the foods that feel the least risky. And so then people have pride that gets in the way. Well, I want to do a big step, you know, <laughs> and I'll say, but you're terrified of carbohydrates. I would be thrilled if you could have a, 
birthday cake with your grandma, I think that would be awesome. But is that a realistic thing to do today? Uh, what if we started with having, you know, some, some toast with your eggs or something like that, or just looking at those kinds of things. And by the way, if someone feels ready to take on the cake, I'm not going to stop them, yeah. but I want to create the, the conditions that, that, that we don't have to add unnecessary terror <laughs> yeah. into this, into this process. And so one of the biggest problems I'm seeing right now, I have never seen carbohydrates so vilified as I have had in these last few years. I never thought I'd ever see a doctor talking about keto as a lifestyle. And and so what's happening in the past, it used to be an individual was a, had, had fear foods, but now when you have diet culture reinforcing it, and then you've got healthcare fads also reinforcing it, I say, it's no wonder you're scared. I really get it. Uh, we need to have compassion for this. So what, what is the food we can start off with in this category that would feel doable? And for different people, it's different foods. It might be brown rice, it might be quinoa, it might be, you know, I don't know, crackers or something like that. And let's try it out. And that's the important part. Let's try it out. But this is the part that's really important. Dieters or people following food plans are used to checking off the boxes. It's trying it out, but connecting, mm. connecting. And it's, it's the so what factor. And so did it make a difference? How did you feel? What was your energy like? What was your mood? And the thing I see across the board, <laughs> I had an athlete I was working with who was retired from a sport and was terrified of eating carbs. And one of the things we got her started back on was, was to start it was something very simple. I think we added a slice of bread or something with her lunch. And she said, I can't get over the damnedest thing. I used to be, what did she say? I used to be a real bitch. Two o'clock, get out of my way. And she goes, now I'm okay. I can't believe that something so small made a difference. And I've seen these things. And yet, if you don't look for it, you might miss it. So, you know, here in California, well, back when we were driving before the pandemic, you know, if you're driving around with dirty windows on your car, you kind of get used to it. And then one day you get your car washed yeah. and you come out, it's like, oh my God, I can see again. Yeah. That's what it's kind of like. It's a slow waking up and it's okay to go slow. And sometimes for some people, they're going to need to work with somebody, you know, and it's why we started training and certifying health professionals in this process that sometimes you need a little more support and there's no shame in that. We also have a, a free and a free online intuitive eating peer support group uh, where people can also go as well. So with all that's going on in our culture, it's understandable that you have this fear. So we begin slowly. But then we start also breaking down, what's the belief system you have about the food? Where did you learn that? Who told you this? What study was this? Was this study done on humans? Was it on rats? Was it for a lifetime or was it for like two, two, yeah. two days, you know? Yeah. So it's really interesting how fixed and rigid some of these ideas become. And so we start to deconstruct them. And it's not about bringing uh, any kind of shame into this process. It's bringing this understanding. So we have some cognitive flexibility around this. And the mm. other thing I say, there's nothing wrong with having preferences. You know, I have some patients right now that have preferences. Like they want to, you know, eat vegetarian or they want to stay organic. And I'll say, you know, uh, let's heal your relationship with food first. And once that's cl clearly in place, if you want to have those values, good for you uh, in, in terms of wanting to do that. But let's be flexible about it. If you go out to a meal and there's nothing there for you to eat, I'd hate for you not to participate, you know, to have yeah. this flexibility and not be so attached or have your identity attached into what you're, you're eating, you know. There's so much in there. And I think like I would love to just hear um, – Quickly, I've just got a couple last questions for you here. Um, but I think one thing that I, I'd love to really hear your insight on is I know that some of us are really 
excellent at being able to identify food rules that we live under when it really kind of comes down to like a black, white, yes, no, like don't allow yourself yeah. that, but allow yourself this. Are there other rules that you see a lot of people operating under that are sneaky and they don't really realize are rules or an, and impacting their overall relationship? Yes. Can you tell us what those are? Thank or some you. of the big ones. Yeah. I'll give you hints and it's something that's just, it's really getting to me and it has to do with diet culture getting so sneaky. And there was a brilliant op-ed piece written last year talking about how diet culture and wellness culture is like a virus that keeps shape shifting. And so what's happening now, I have people who don't relate to the idea of the diet, uh, that they're on a diet or that they're a dieter, but oh my God, do they have food rules and oh, are they rigid? And so they're speaking the language of health. And what's really starting to get me is sometimes they're co-opting the language of intuitive eating or something. Yes. And it's like, let's go back to principle number one, reject the diet mentality. Is there anything in there telling you to count, change your body, or those kinds of things? If the answer is yes, they are, they're like, they're, they're not, they're fake. It's fake intuitive eating. So what I've seen a lot of people do, and this, this, this is more in, towards the orthorexia, and orthorexia, you know, for those who are not familiar with the term, is when you become so obsessed with healthy eating, that you become so rigid that you become unhealthy in the process. And weight's not necessarily even part of the equation. It's this pursuit of purity or, or having clean, clean eating or whatever the rules are. And so that's not healthy because it's not cognitively healthy. It's fixed and, and, and rigid. So when someone says, well, I'm just gonna do a cleanse, it's like, guess what? That's diet culture. That are, we, have, we have cleaning machines inside our body. We have called the liver, the kidney, and the lungs. It does an awesome job. Um, so what I'm finding is the language isn't necessarily even dieting anymore. It's sneaky. It's wellness based. It's inflammation based when actually there's not research on this. So I would say if it's causing, if it's a rigid rule, you need to start taking a look at that. And if you buy, so what I look at with rules, is it rigid? And how does it make you feel if you violate the rule and what's mm -hmm. the behavior? So if it's rigid and you have guilt, we need to look at that. What well, did you kill anyone? No. Okay then what's, what's, the, what's, un, what's underneath this? So I use guilt as a pathway to start looking at, at some of these things. Uh, you know, when people have, you know, life-threatening food allergies or they have something like celiac disease, then yeah, there are very specific things you need to do. You can still do the intuitive eating principles, uh, you know, in terms of eating in a way that feels good and satisfies, um, but all the other kinds of things are really, really problematic. So basically, who says? We need to be really good at science literacy. I'm starting to teach that now to my clients, you know? Yeah. 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 I think that was so important to hear because I, I, I think that a lot, like there are a lot of us out there who are like, well, I can identify like a yes list and a no list as being rules, but I don't really identify a lot of this other stuff as diet mentality or rules mentality, but it is so sneaky in how it comes in and we're just kind yeah. of using different language, but it's definitely still there. And so I really appreciate you like shining a light on that. And I have a last question for you, but before I get to that, I just want to give you an opportunity to tell um, everybody who's listening right now um, where they can continue to learn from you and where they can find you and your resources oh, yeah. and your work out in the world. Oh, I'm happy to. So the place I'm most active right now on social media is Instagram. So you can follow me at, at Evelyn Trimley and I post exclusively on uh, intuitive eating subjects. So that's a place, uh, my website, evelyntrimley.com or the intuitive eating Dot org. We post a lot of research there, the, the intuitive eating online community. Um, the other thing is we have over a, um, a thousand health professionals certified in our method in over 23 countries. So if you look like you want to be working with somebody, we have a directory and also check that out. And we've got our, I'm so excited about our new book coming out. It's the, up dish, uh, the um, 
revised and updated intuitive reading that will be out june 2020 so yeah We'll be sure to keep our eyes out for that. And I appreciate that. And Evelyn, my last question for you is like, you know, I think some of this is something that we've been speaking of a little bit, you know, about already, but I'd love to hear you really distill this down for a really implementable um, set of steps for those folks who are listening to this conversation today. And like, you know, we were speaking of earlier, I have a lot of people in my audience who come from like macro tracking from the weightlifting world and the CrossFit community and like are realizing that they just don't really want to do that anymore. But there's such, there's like a, there's such a gap between realizing that they don't want to do that anymore and being able to take the first steps into this entire universe that we've been talking about today. So for those people who are seeing it over there and go, Oh, I want that, but don't really know where we even begin with this process to get to that place to start this. If you had to distill this down to like the three most valuable steps or first steps that somebody can take to do this for themselves today, to move in that direction, what would you say those are? Wow. Wow. Splitting the baby. Um, I'd say the first thing, honestly, is to, to seek satisfying eating experiences yeah. authentically. You know, when someone tells me that, oh yeah, eating this applesauce on this rice cake is like apple pie. It's like, no, it's not. <laughs> but I've had patients that sometimes keep talking themselves into it. So it, it has to be this, this authenticity. So that seeking satisfaction, I think, is, is a good pathway because it's connecting to you. The thing I would have you do, knowing who your audience base is, on the reject the diet mentality, I'd have you really kind of sit down and look at how have your thoughts and beliefs around your eating, how's that impacting your quality of life? And that's the stuff that really gets me, that there's this background tape of anxiety about the rules and the shoulds. And as a result, when you're having dinner with your partner or your friends, you're not there. Your mind is stuck with, oh my gosh, should I order this? I don't know, what's the da 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 so, so starting to look at that, how has the way that you've been living right now, how is it interfering with your life? Because what I find is when you're in diet culture, it's interfering with your life. Do you turn down engagement, social engagements and so on, because you're not sure about the food? That would be something to really start looking for, you know? Uh, and then in terms of a, a third thing, I, I just like asking, you know, what am I feeling right now? What do I need? This, that's part of the intuitive eating process, even though it's not a step. You know, sometimes I need, I need nourishment. Or I need a break. And oh my God, I need, I need to go and I need to go for a lovely, vigorous walk just to soothe my mind. It can be all different types of things. So going back to I, having unconditional positive regard for yourself as opposed to giving it to some authority to outsource your authority to somebody else, you're the authority. That's what I want to leave with. You're the boss of you, you know? Mm, so much good stuff in there. I wish we could just have you here for hours and, and open all of this up. There's just really, really uh, beautiful reminders, really important um, things that I know that everybody needs to hear, especially now in the, in the environment that everybody is sort of being faced with. Um, I think this is especially important for us to hear and remind ourselves of. So thank you so much evelyn for sharing your time and your wisdom with us today i so appreciate everything um, that you shared with us and i just know that everybody's clapping along as you're <laughs> talking <Yeah>. so <laughs> thank you so much i really thank you okay take care and there you have it i so hope you enjoyed that episode as much as i did it was such an honor to get to chat with her. She's such a fun, vibrant, smart woman, as I'm sure you could tell. It was such a privilege to have her on the show and explain this concept that she invented so beautifully. I also wanna add that if our conversation really resonated with you today, 
I have devised my own signature method to help you break free from the shackles and the insidious way the diet culture is showing up in your life and driving a wedge between you and, well, you. She Thrives Academy is my signature program that I have developed to help you learn how to take care of yourself, mind, body, and soul. Through this conversation, I'm sure you realized how deeply intertwined all of this stuff really is. And our relationship with food is just sort of like a manifestation of our relationship and our, uh, with ourselves, our belief systems, all these different things get caught up in a big knot. And She Thrives Academy is the program that I've developed to coach you through the process of learning how to unlearn all of that and live in alignment with your truest self and really heal your relationship to your body, to food, and most importantly, to yourself. So I just wanna put that out there, that that exists. If you enjoyed today's conversation and wanna learn more about how you can apply to become a part of this life-changing program, I will leave a link in the show notes for you. And I think that's all I've got for you. I sure hope you enjoyed this conversation today. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. today's show, please take a moment to share a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button while you're at it. If you're looking for some more She Thrives goodness in your life, you can find me posting over on Instagram at She Thrives blog. And if you're interested in learning how to work with me inside She Thrives Academy, head over to my website at www.shethrivesblog.com to learn more and check out all the deeds for you there.